Father, your word says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love for those who fear you. And so, Father, because your love is great, because your steadfast love is far-reaching, as far as the heavens, as far as space extends, I pray that as your word goes forward, Lord, that you would, that you would save the lost, that you would challenge the complacent, that you would disturb the sleepy, that you would encourage the downtrodden, that you would bind up the broken, and that you would heal the wounded, all by the power of your word as we look at the kingship of King Jesus. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Warrior and king. Warrior and king. Uh, I submit those are two words that you don't hear very often as describing Jesus. The words warrior and king. But I believe that that is exactly, those are exactly the way that Luke, who writes this passage, would describe Jesus. I believe that's exactly what Luke would want us to see about Jesus. We're looking today, the, the, the story is you know, the triumphal entry. And uh, it's a story, if you've been around church for a while, you know, we usually do this on Palm Sunday. It's the story of how Jesus gets into Jerusalem. You know, he, 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 it's kind of a neat little story. You know, he, he goes to the Mount of Olives, he sees Jerusalem, he gets a, a donkey or a colt, and he rides that thing into Jerusalem, and everybody's praising him and throwing down palm branches and cloaks, and uh, everybody's all excited. And that's how Jesus gets into Jerusalem. That's how he gets to the final week of his life where he will be crucified where he will rise again. So, you know, I always kind of looked at that story just kind of like, that's eh, a neat story, it's a cute little story, it gets Jesus from, you know, the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, but that's about all there ever is. And so, uh, I think that if there's any lesson in that, that the lesson is that God is never cute and that his stories are always mean more than simply uh, just a little way to get, get us from one point to another. And I think that's the case with the triumphal entry. It's not just a nice little story. And in fact, if we think that, I think we're going to miss the whole point. In fact, it is the culmination of everything that Jesus has done thus far. It is the culmination of everything that Jesus is. It is the focal point. It is the point where he comes to the spearhead of his battle. The triumphal entry is the culmination of Jesus as a warrior coming to the place of battle. Why do I say that? I say that for a number of different reasons. One is because th- this is a transition point into the very last section of Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So now we're seeing that the Son of Man is coming to save the lost. And all the way up to this point, the whole middle section of Luke that we've been in for such a long time has been leading us to this moment. It's been leading us to this moment where, where Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem, or in his case, ride the donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, look how Look how Luke leads us that way. Go back all the way to chapter 9, verse 51. What does it say? It says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. What does that mean, taken up? Uh, For him to die, for him to be crucified. When those days drew near, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. He set his face. He turned his body. He put his eyes on Jerusalem. He was singularly minded about going to Jerusalem. He was a warrior going to battle. He was on point. He was on task. 
That is what he was going to be doing for the rest of his life on earth is going toward Jerusalem. Luke keeps reminding us of that. Two verses later, he says, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. He leaves there. He's in Samaria. He journeys on. As you know, he continues to teach. He heals people. He engages people. He's, he's uh, preaching the Sermon on the Plain. He teaches the Lord's Prayer. You know, he's going on throughout his ministry, engaging people and healing people. And yet, all the while, his eyes are set on Jerusalem. It says in chapter 13, 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Jesus is a warrior on point, on mission for where he's going. Same thing, 1333, uh, I love this, that Jesus, Jesus, the way Jesus says this. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He knows he's going to Jerusalem, and he knows he's going there to be crucified. He says, it cannot be that a prophet would perish away from Jerusalem. So I go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day. He's a warrior on point. These verses kind of keep coming in 1711. It reminds us he's on the way to Jerusalem as he's passing through these villages. 1831, um, it says, taking the 12, in other words, his 12 disciples, you know, the 12 followers, says he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And in 1911, after he meets Zacchaeus, remember the wee little man that climbed up in the tree to see Jesus? He meets him, and then after that he says, as they, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And as we come into our passage today, which starts at 928, it reminds us that the culmination, the focal point has been reached. The warrior has reached the place of battle, 1928. After he told this parable, after he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is singularly focused. He's on point. He's on task. This is the culmination of everything he is and everything he wants to be able to accomplish. Jesus has planned this trip. This trip is not simply willy-nilly. He has his mind set on it. He has planned it from eternity past, from thousands and thousands of years ago. He has planned this trip, and he has been arranging for it since he has been in his earthly ministry. Why do I say that? Well, there's another little story here within this, and uh, I always found this really confusing. You know, how, did, how does Jesus get the donkey? Remember how Jesus gets the donkey? It's this very weird kind of story. I always just kind of like, I got to skip that. I don't really know what was going on there. And let me just read it to you and we can talk about it. He says, uh, this is verse 29 and following in our passage. He says, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, which is on the backside of the Mount of Olives, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples say, go to the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, where, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, why are you untying my colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, I just always found this so strange. I'm like, is Jesus like, you know, is he using his mind-bending supernatural powers to kind of see that there's this cult tied up, and then he manipulates the owners to let them take it anyway, and they're just kind of like robots in a daze. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I, I, as I thought about it, I, I, I thought it'd kind of be like if you left the service today and you walked out in the parking lot and someone's getting in your car and kind of backing out, driving off, and you run up to them, you're beating on the window. Hey, what are you doing? You're in my car. And they say, the Lord has need of it. 
And you're like, oh, well, if, if the Lord has need of it, go right ahead. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, you would be like, get out of my car. I'm calling the police. You're silly. Um, and so that's why this story always seemed weird to me. But if you think about it as Jesus being a warrior on point, culminating his mission at this point, we know that he's been in Bethany before. Bethany was where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany was where Mary and Martha lived. His friends lived there. It seems that when he was there, probably a year earlier, he had arranged with a friend, with an acquaintance, I will be back at this time next year. I will have my face set toward Jerusalem. I will be back. You have a cult waiting for me. I'll send my disciples to get it. If you ask them, they will tell you it's for me. And Jesus has set this up. He has preordained it. Because he is a, he is a warrior who is on task and on point on his mission to go to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. Now, why a donkey? You ever wonder this? Like, Jesus just walked all this way, right? I mean, if you look at the narrative of Luke, and I kind of just summarize some of those verses he's going to Jerusalem, he starts way out in Samaria. I mean, he walks like miles and miles and miles. And in fact, it looks like in just one day he walked from Jericho to the Mount of Olives, which is like 17 miles all uphill. And so, now is he like, he's right across from Jerusalem. Now does he just need a donkey? Because, you know, that was a long journey, and now I'm too tired to walk that last mile, so I just better get a, an animal and, uh, and, and tie it. No, it doesn't make any sense. He would have had one before, arranged for one. He gets a donkey for a very specific reason. You know, there are ancient stories in Israel for the Jews that were told about what it would look like when the Messiah came to town. There are all these old stories, these ancient legends and lore and writings about what it would be like when the king really showed up. Christianity, we call that prophecy. You know, we believe that God has spoken before about certain events that will take place, and certainly that's what Jesus is picking up on here. He's looking at Zechariah 9 9. Let me just read that verse to you. It's not on the screen, but I will I'll just read it. This is in the Old Testament, several hundred years before Jesus comes. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That means children of Jerusalem, children of God. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. So rejoice and shout. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, uh, righteous, and having salvation is he. How is he coming? Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Jesus is very specifically saying, he's doing something by arranging for this donkey, he's saying something very specific about who he is. He's doing something very symbolic. He's saying, when I get on this donkey and I ride into Jerusalem, I am saying to you, I'm not simply the warrior on point, but I am the king. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey. After all, every great warrior turns out to be a king anyway, right? And so Jesus is saying, I'm not only a warrior on point, but I'm also a king. And the people pick it up right away because their praise of him says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not dumb. They know the stories. They know the writings. And immediately they recognize Jesus is laying claim to the throne. All right, so Jesus has made this journey. So let's back up a little bit. He's made this journey. He's been moving toward Jerusalem the whole time. He gets to the Mount of Olives. If you, and you kind of have to know the geography here to understand what's about to happen. He gets to the Mount of Olives. He gets his donkeys on the backside, and then he comes up to the top of the Mount of Olives. 
And the Mount of Olives looks right out over Jerusalem. If you were here last week, Jeremy Irwin talked a little bit about this. But the Mount of Olives looks right out over Jerusalem. So as he's been traveling and traveling, there should be a picture coming up. This is a picture from the Mount of Olives into present-day Jerusalem. And obviously the Dome of the Rock wasn't there and all that stuff in Jesus' day. But as Jesus crests that mountain, he is coming to the point of no return. He crests the mountain, he looks out over, and what he sees in front of him is Jerusalem. There it is, the holy city, the city of all the ancient legend and lore, the city of God, the city of the prophets, the city of the Jews. Ancient Zion stands before him. And at this point, he is at a threshold. He's he's one step away from the point of no return. If Jesus on that donkey starts down that mountain, then he's at the point of no return. He's going into Jerusalem, and he will be arrested, tried, and executed. And so I wonder what it was like for him to stand on that mountain and look out over Jerusalem, you know, God's city, but the city where he would be killed. And it was a threshold moment. If he took a step, he would not be able to go back. He could always stop there, right? He could always say he needed more time. He could always turn back. He could always say that the timing just wasn't right this time, and we can do it again next year. He's at the point of no return. You ever been at the point of no return in your life, maybe in a relationship, in a career, in a trip, a journey? That's where Jesus is. As a pastor, I kind of get to see this a lot because I get to do weddings. And I I love to watch the groom. That's what I spend most of the wedding doing. Because there's always this time that he realizes that he's at the point of no return. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's right before the service, you know, we're like we're standing off to the side and the, and the music is playing, or the music starts playing, and there's like this, you can kind of see the lump in his throat and in his chest, like we're about to walk out and I'm getting married and there's nothing else I can do about it. Uh, and sometimes it's in the vows, you know, where you're saying, um, for better or worse, richer or poorer, uh, as long as we both shall live or till death do us part. And you, you see this, there's this glaze over the eyes. And most of you sitting out there, you think it's love, but it's actually fear. <laughs> Except for me, mine was all love. <laughs> uh, but anyway, there's lots of times where you, you realize that you're reaching this point of no return. And that's where Jesus is. He's on top of the mountain. And he knows he's at the point of no return. There is no going back. If he starts down that mountain, he makes this public entrance into Jerusalem. And everybody sees him. Everybody knows him. And he's there. And as I said, Jesus is a warrior on a mission. So though he, I don't know if he hesitated or not at the top. But whether he did or not, he started, he took the next step. He reached the point of no return. And he began down his trip into Jerusalem. It's important that you kind of understand the trip that he takes because the geography is really important, which isn't common in the in in the story, but in this case it is. So if you look at the picture, it's hard to tell because of the angle, but down you you can see that you're up on a mountain, you have to go down into the valley, into that gorge there, and then reclimb the mountain to get into Jerusalem. There's a there's a valley there's called the Valley of Kidron or the or the Gorge of Kidron. And so the journey that Jesus is about to make is encapsulating, it's symbolic, it's exemplary, it's paradigmatic of the entire last week of his life. Because this trip he's about to take, descent into the gorge and ascent into the city, is exactly what he's going to accomplish when he gets into the city. 
He's going to descend into the grave, to the cross, into the grave, and ascend in resurrection, rise from the dead. So this picture is a picture of what his kingship is like. And I think that no matter kind of where you are, some of you are here and just kind of very new to Christianity, or maybe you don't even know what you believe about Jesus yet. I'm not sure what it would mean to believe in him, what it would mean to really follow a warrior king. And uh, Jesus is going to kind of demonstrate a little bit about what that actually looks like in this journey. And for those of you who have been around for long, you say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm following Jesus. He's going to demonstrate what does it really mean? What does it really look like? How can you go deeper? How can you grow more as you follow King Jesus? So the the very first thing I would say about uh, Jesus' kingship is that it is penetrating. It's a penetrating kingship. It is all-knowing. Why would I say that? Well, look at verses 37 and 38. What happens when Jesus crosses that threshold, that point of no return, what happens? It says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, so there he goes, he started down now, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, if you look at it, it, it sounds great at first, doesn't it? Look at the people gra- gathering around Jesus. They're praising him. They're, they're worshiping him. This sounds like the best thing ever. You know, They're ushering the king into the city. But if we look a little closer, we recognize it's not as good as it first seemed. They, they praise him for all, it says in the text there, for all the mighty works they had seen. So they're good with Jesus as long as he's doing mighty works. In the, in, a, in the other gospel, it says they were saying Hosanna, which means save now. In other words, go and conquer, go, go and save now, conquer the Romans. Go into the city, be a king like the kings of the nations. And when it comes time to get to the cross, where are the worshiping multitudes? Is anyone left? No, Jesus said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. They're all gone. They, they, they may be willing to follow Jesus into the Valley of Kidron, but they're not willing to follow him to the cross. See, they, they don't want Jesus to be king. They want him to be their kind of king. They want him to be the kind of king that they want. They don't want Jesus to be king. They want him to be their kind of king. And in reality, they're really just pretenders. They're really just posers before King Jesus. But the great thing is that Jesus is never fooled by this. He doesn't get all caught up. I mean, I, I think like I'd get caught up in that. If people were like, hey, welcome, Jeremy King. Come on in. You know, everybody's excited about my status and my honor. And I'd be, you know, just all worked up in a tizzy about that. But Jesus is not excited about that. In fact, John 2, uh, 24 and 25, what does it say? Jesus never entrusted himself to a man because he knew what was in a man. He was able to see through. His kingship is penetrating. It's all powerful. He was able to see through the hubbub so quickly. Jesus was able to simply cut through that. He doesn't fool Jesus. In fact, you see that, what do the Pharisees say? They they come up to Jesus and say, uh, listen, teacher, this is verse 39, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop doing that. And what does Jesus say? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, these people are here today and gone tomorrow. But I will be praised even if it takes the stones to do it. So Jesus is not worried about 
the praise of men. He's not worried about the pretenders, people that are here today and gone tomorrow. He recognizes that for all their goodness, all their, all their religiosity, all their praising, all their singing, all their excitement about Jesus, that they're not going to be around when it comes time for the cross. And so Jesus sees right through us. He's not going to be fooled. You can't put one by him. He does not accept pretenders and posers. He sees right through them. And I think what it teaches us is that there is a way for us to be good and moral and righteous and church-going and wonderful and community-loving and still do it all in the wrong way. There's a way for us to be willing to praise Jesus on the mountain and abandon him in the gorge. To praise him on the mountain when he is our kind of king and to abandon him at the cross when he no longer fits our agenda. The people wanted him to fit their agenda. But Jesus is not fooled. He's not fooled. He ain't impressed. He's not given in to these people. In fact, when I think about it, I think for, for so long in my life, especially through high school and the first part of college, I was such a pretender with God. I was just such a, just such a pretender, such a poser. Because I just assumed that, I mean, look at me, God. I, I, I'm, I'm obeying all the rules. I'm doing all the right things. I'm obeying your rules. I'm keeping my end of the deal. And now you keep your end of the deal. That's not kingship. A king is not in debt to any man. So Jesus is able to see right through their praise, right through that. Jesus can simply cut through the crap. He doesn't, he's not fooled by the people who are simply pretending that he is king. And so I I think that it is very easy for us to pretend. It's easy for us to fool. And we can we can fool our parents. We can fool our spouses. We can fool our church. We can fool our communities. We can fool a lot of people about who we really are. But you'll never fool Jesus because he cuts through. He's not fooled by pretenders, people who pretend to follow him. John Owen, was a, he's a great... Uh, probably the greatest speaking English theologian ever to, ever to walk the planet. And he has this little saying that this is 350 years ago, uh, but every time I think about it, it just jolts me, it just strikes me, it just causes me to like, wake up and examine myself. And he said, we have many people in our age, remember this is three, 350 years ago, you know, golden age, so to speak. We have many people in our age who are great professors, but we have very few possessors. In other words, we have lots of people who are professing, Lots of people who can profess Jesus on the mountaintop, but abandon him in the gorge. Lots of people who profess and praise Jesus, but very few who actually possess him. So are we professors or are we possessors? Because the bottom line is Jesus doesn't have time for pretenders. He doesn't have time for people that are posing. He doesn't have time for that. He does not welcome that. You can never come to King Jesus saying, look at my gifts. Look at the gifts I bring you. Never come to King Jesus saying, look at the works. Look at all the things I can do. You can never come to King Jesus that way 
because he's a king. Instead, King Jesus demands that you come to him not as your kind of king, but as your king in humility and repentance and neediness. The only way to come to King Jesus is simply to say, I'm a broken person. I'm a sinful person. I'm a flawed person. I'm a needy person. And whether you do that for the very first time or you do that as walking through day-to-day life in Christianity, it will be the same. You know, you will say every single day, Lord Jesus, I need you for this doctor's appointment. Lord Jesus, I'm broken. I need you for help with this sin in my life. Lord Jesus, I'm broken. I need you to be able to face my wife, to face my husband, to face my parents, to be even able to talk to this person with a broken relationship. Whatever it is, there's constant need. That's what it means to come to Jesus both for the first time and every day thereafter. You come to him as king, not with your gifts and your talents and your works, your religiosity. You come to him with your brokenness, and that is what moves him to act. That's what moves him to receive you. So Jesus' kingship is so precious because it is so sustaining. We bring him each and every moment of our lives. So Jesus' kingship is penetrating and it's Uh, all-knowing. It's also all pervasive. What do I mean by that? Well, every, in other words, every area of our lives comes under the kingship of Jesus, not just an hour on Sunday, not just Sundays, not just this religious activity, but every part of our lives are part of our relationship to the warrior king. The people of the day, they wanted to be able to pick and choose. They liked Jesus as long as he was doing their agenda, but they didn't like him whenever he decided that he had a different agenda. But we don't get to pick and choose with Jesus. We don't get to come and say, well, I like Jesus on this aspect, and I don't like him here, so I can kind of mix him into my spiritual hodgepodge of of beliefs, and he fits me here, but he doesn't fit here. It's no big deal either way. Jesus will not be a king like that. He is not a king like that. And I think sometimes my fear is that what we do is we, we create this, you know, Walmart Jesus. He's, a, he's a, a Walmart Jesus. You know, what do we do with Walmart? What do we do with stores? We, I'll shop at Walmart as long as they have the brand, the item that I want at the right price, the most convenient location, the most convenient time. But otherwise, I'm going here. You know, I might buy my uh, household products at Walmart, but I'm buying my dishes at another store. And that works all well and good in our economy. But with Jesus, uh, it simply will not work. He will not be a Walmart Jesus to be picked and chosen over. And, and I think this is, I think it's hard for us because we live in a, a democracy. We live in a republic, uh, which is great. I'm glad we don't have a monarchy anymore. But um, to understand the concept of King Jesus is so difficult because we live in a place where, you know, consumeristic choices. We have Walmart, we have Target, we have all these places. We, li- we, we live in an age not of kings, but of presidents and senators and congressmen and representatives uh, where our government is of the people and for the people and by the people, at least supposedly in theory. And uh, a couple of you are awake. Um, so we have this idea about what it's like to be, you know, what our rulers are like. And I think that at times it can turn out to be that we not only create a government that's of and by and for the people, but a Jesus that is of and by and for the people. And he begins to be our go-to guy as long as he is enacting our agenda. You know, I'm, I'm fine with Jesus as long as he is not telling me how to use my sexuality. I'm fine with Jesus as long as he's not going to tell me uh, how to spend my money. Jesus, you and me, we're good. We're good until you start crossing my will. We're good until you start telling me 
uh, how, how many hours of TV and internet I can use. We're good until you start telling me how to live my life, how to run my business. Those are personal decisions. Those aren't for you, Jesus. You can be king over here, but not over here. Get to be a Walmart Jesus. So my fear is that too often we want Jesus to heal us when we're sick and make us prosperous when we're poor and encourage us when we're down and give us a boyfriend or girlfriend when we're lonely. But it doesn't take anything, especially Christian, to want those things. Everybody wants those things. The question is, do we want Jesus? Do we really want him to be the king? We really want King Jesus. In reality, his kingship is marked by descent before ascent, right? He goes into the valley before he goes to the mountain. He goes into the grave before he is resurrected from the grave. And that's really a picture of how you follow Jesus. We talked about his, his kingship is pervasive and all-knowing. You have to submit yourself, come humbly, offer yourself, you're king, God, I'm not king. And you follow him by realizing you follow him into the gorge and out again. You follow him to death and life all over again. And what you begin to realize is that you have to die to yourself to live to Jesus. You start to realize these hands are not mine anymore. These eyes are not mine to simply look at whatever I want to look at. These feet are not mine to go wherever I will. But this heart is not mine to simply feel whatever emotion I want to feel. That's what Paul means in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified. I've become dead to this world in the sense that I need the things it provides. Said I'm coming to King Jesus. And so what, he, what Jesus wants to know is will you follow him into the gorge? Anybody can follow him on the mountain. Are you going to follow him in the gorge? Will we follow him to the Christ, to the cross? Will we follow him in an economic crisis, an economic meltdown? Will we follow him in adversity. Jesus wants other warriors to band with him and fight beside him in adversity. To die to ourselves and be raised to new life because it's in the valley where we're transformed. It's in the grave where we are born again to new life. With every descent, there is an ascent. With every trip and stumble, Jesus is there to pick us up. So Jesus' kingship is penetrating, it's all-knowing, it is all-pervasive, it covers every area of our life. It's also compassionate, you're going to see, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because I need to, just, to wrap up, but he says in verse 41, he draws near, the, draws near the city and he weeps over it. Jesus is a compassionate, tender warrior. He weeps over his enemies and he weeps for his friends and he makes a place. He's weeping over Jerusalem because he said, you did not know what? The time, the last words, the time of your visitation. Do we know the time of our visitation? Do we know that God himself has visited us in King Jesus? And that Jesus provides a place for us. He is the warrior king going to do battle with sin and death and hell. And it sounds like it's very tough. It sounds like it's really tough, really hard to follow King Jesus. But he's a liberating king. He's a tender warrior. He's compassionate. And he is the warrior who went into Jerusalem, did not stop at the point of no return. He went into Jerusalem and he conquered sin and death and hell on our behalf, all of our enemies, anything that would stand in our way. And he promises that the valley is not the end. The cross is not the end. The gorge is not the end. 
for all of us who are willing to follow Jesus into the gorge, he will also lead us up the other side. For all of us who are willing to follow Jesus into the tomb, he will lead us out as well into new life where we will find everlasting joy and happiness, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Let's pray.